Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast, and my guest today is someone who's been on the show before, Michelle Egan, who is a global fellow at the Wilson Center and professor at American University, and an expert on uh, that we've turned to on trade and the British economy in the past. So welcome back, Michelle. Thank you, Aaron, for having me. With all of this going on with the COVID-19 situation, uh, what had been a, I think some would say a rough transition from the EU through Brexit has kind of fallen back from the headlines. How has the British economy weathered first the the Brexit transition, and now how are they dealing with COVID-19? Well, the interesting part of this is the pandemic will be transient versus the long-term effects of leaving the EU. The e- leaving the EU is permanent. Dealing with the pandemic will take time, but there will eventually be a recovery and a uh, back to normalcy if that's uh, if that can be a, a sort of established. I think that it's in some ways it's made it really interesting from a political but also an economic point of view. There's been political pressure to sort of say dealing with this pandemic and the fa- fact that Boris Johnson was hospitalized to actually kick the can down the road and ask for an extension by June for the EU Brexit negotiations. That hasn't been forthcoming. They've been proceeding with, you know, rounds of negotiations. That said, what I think is very important from an economic point of view is the fact that, you know, the we've seen a sort of shift to the digitalization of the economy and the digital, you know, and the growth of the service economy because of the pandemic. And it's suppressed economic output. But if you look at it, the goal of the Boris Johnson administration was to turn around and say, hey, we need to support the Northeast. We need to support Northern England. We need to sort of not have everything focused on London. The problem is financial services and the service economy is focused around London and the manufacturing is outside of London. So the trade costs here in terms of if it's moving into the digital domain, I think that's going to have an impact in growing uh, uh, income inequality within the UK. That is a that is a great point that I think that you make on the transient versus the permanent uh, serious challenges that they need to overcome in the short term with the pandemic, but the long term issues they're still going to be long term issues. Uh, are some of those long term issues going to be affected by what the short term issues of COVID nineteen are presenting? I think so. Um, What we have seen is that the British have decided, you know, not to participate in specific EU initiatives. I'll give you uh, three. Um, The first one is um, 
procurement, which is all about government purchasing. It's no longer part of the European Medical Agency. So all of that sort of cooperation on medicine will come from the private sector, but the British have taken themselves out of some of those discussions within the EU. The second issue is that uh, this week, um, Merkel and Macron have decided to have a 500 billion European rescue fund. It's enormous and it hasn't got the attention. That's going to distribute um, funds as grants, not loans. They've learned from the Eurozone crisis. This is going to be to countries and sectors hard hit by the COVID-19 crisis. And this is sort of an indication of lack of you know, solidarity last time during the Eurozone. And it's the fact that it's come from France and Germany with Britain not participating. Britain will not be a beneficiary of this major sort of rescue fund. And so this has sort of really uh, been the second issue. And I think the third issue for many of these countries, including the UK, is their healthcare system has been under strain. You know, for sort of Italy, the measures of austerity after the Eurozone, but the British, because they have really not funded the healthcare system for several decades, the national healthcare system. So I do think there's going to be some real impact and uh, of COVID on the British economy, of COVID on its relations with the EU, and um, COVID as well in terms of supply chains. You know, this is obviously something people talk about. It's hit traffic in goods. Transportation is a vector of transmission. And things have to come from the EU across the channel to the UK. So these things are really interrelated. Interesting. So let's pivot now to some another factor of Brexit, which is that they have to negotiate trade deals with basically everybody. They need to renegotiate all their trade deals throughout the world. You mentioned there briefly that they have been working on one with the European Union, which is probably the most important one for them since they are directly neighbors and they need to work on these these flows of capital and people and everything else. But we've also heard in the last couple of weeks that they're getting started on a new trade deal with the United States. So how are these working for them? They're going to be somewhat different in the sense that we've had this past week in May, the third round of UK-EU future relationship. And they seem to be, both of sides have set out their draft documents. Both sides seem to be talking past one another. Member states are really weary of Brexit. They want it done. But the other difference is that Brexit has a timestamp on it, the way that a UK-US negotiation does not. You could say that the US-UK negotiation needs to get done before Trump leaves office, but that's not necessarily the case. But for the UK, EU, you know, the deadline is supposedly December of this year. And they right now negotiating with the UK is very different. It's geographically close. It's tangled up with all the regulations. And the EU is approaching it like any other. It'll only compromise where it sees a trade-off amongst the member states, and it has to make sure the member states are behind it, all 27. So we've already seen sort of several contentious issues. The first one would be, strangely enough, fishing quotas and access to UK waters. It's a sovereignty issue. 
yet the number of fishing vessels in the UK now, it's so marginal and so small, but it's symbolically important. The second issue is level playing field. Nobody wants Britain's environmental, labor, health, food standards to plummet relative to the EU because that'll make them more competitive in some areas. And the third issue, I think, will be... Um, what's, you know, will, you know, how will they deal with if both sides start having state aid, state subsidies, industrial policy, and sort of beggar thy neighbor policies. And then I think the uh, final issue will be a whole host of things that, you know, member states are going to have their own pet projects, red lines that they want to, the British to move on. So at this point, um, you know, the, the British are arguing, you're asking more of us than you do from Japan or Canada. Well, they're not closely proximate in terms of a trade neighbor. And the last issue that's going to be contentious, and people are finally seeing the reality of this, is there will be a border in the Irish Sea. There will be border posts in Liverpool, in Belfast, in all of these places, because if something comes from mainland Britain, Scotland, Wales, or England to Northern Ireland, it will go through a border check. That's not going to be every product, every crate, every lorry or truck, but the goal is to make sure that those products are not coming in from a third country and then being shipped to the EU via Ireland. That's a contentious issue because you have the Good Friday Agreement, you've had no border for 20 plus years, then there's also just the sheer logistics, customs, rules of origin, trade issues that this will uh, create. And so now we're seeing a sort of a rising sense of what this means in terms of Northern Ireland being treated very, very differently than the rest of the UK. Those are the issues in terms of um, the UK, EU, and then you add on to that this brand new sort of negotiation being opened with the United States. It is nowhere near the ambition that we had several years ago, that they were going to do all these free trade agreements. Right now, there are probably three issues. The first one would be free movement of goods, getting rid of tariffs. That's kind of a low-level ambition, important, but it's low-level. The second issue is they'd like something on financial services, London to Wall Street. They're both very important financial players. The third issue will be digital, the digital economy, data flows, and things like that. Those are important. And that said, um, there'll be a lot of pressure from the U.S. side to have, you know, sale of agricultural products. You know, the agricultural sector will be pushing. And that puts the U.K., do they accept U.S. agricultural products, different standards, or if they want to export, do they, ex do they accept uh, EU standards? So there's the issue of agricultural market access will be number one for the United States. The UK has put forward an 180-page document. Ten times it said, our national health care service is not for sale. We will not allow a reduced level of services and pharmaceutical products. I understand this in terms of sentimentality, 
but I don't understand it in terms of it's not as if we're importing low-level services and pharmaceuticals and medical devices from the United States. So the National Health Service has a a real important kind of sentiment in British public opinion. It's what they thought they were getting post-Brexit, a better healthcare service. But for the United States, you know, they want to sell. They want to sell products, pharmaceuticals, medical devices. So this will be an interesting discussion. And what's the, what is the economy like right now? In Britain, I assume that like everywhere else, they're you know, facing recession and things are trending downwards. Um, are they trying to reopen things? What's the what's the process there, and how is that affecting the, that economic outlook affecting these trade negotiations? I think that there's a whole host of issues going on. There is sort of a sense that London is slowly reopening, and you know whether that's sort of like the United States done through a government uh, proposals or whether it's just done by public demand. Um, that's one issue. Uh, the second issue is the criticism that the British were much later in locking down their economy, both in terms of travel, but also in terms of the general lockdown than a lot of other European countries. Read Germany, read Austria, read Slovenia, uh, Slovakia. So the government has also found that, you know, we've moved to sort of a sort of executive government because, you know, it's been very hard for parliament to exercise a lot of oversight over what the government is doing in terms of the pandemic. So that's something that will come up. I think that you'll see that the British government will be promoting bilateral deals. It'll be looking at its domestic economy. It'll try and stimulate the economy. You know, the problem is it's not part of the central bank, the European Central Bank, which tried to stimulate the European economy through, um, you know, going back as far as 2008. The the European Central Bank did that, and you'll start seeing the, the Bank of England being, you know, sort of quantitative easing as well. The question will be is, you know, how much consumer services will recover? How much people will want to spend, you know, and different states in Europe have taken different strategies. You know, you've had some like a big stimulus package in Germany. You've had some that have tried not to furlough workers that have tried to keep workers on the books. But for the British, it's, um, you know, it's gonna. It's going to show the real regional variation in economic recovery very, very markedly. I think that's the reopening challenge everywhere, right? You can you can say things are open, and just because a restaurant's open, though, doesn't mean people have to go eat at it. So I also think that you know the the British government is proposing a few things that will resonate with a U.S. audience. One is you know its tariffs are going to increase under the WTO, and it's already saying, well, we'll buy stock from farmers if the tariffs go up significantly. Basically, we'll do a buyback. The second thing that they've been concerned about is sterling at is its its lowest level uh, since uh, the 
you know, since Brexit, you know, you've had sterling at a two-year low, and some of that is, and so we're cutting our, we've already been cutting our growth forecasts, but we're doing that, the economy will definitely shrink. That was going to happen before COVID, and now it's going to be amplified. So for a U.S. policymaker, what should they be watching out for as, you know, the next six months unfold or remainder of the year as these trade deals go forward and hopefully there's a recovery from this pandemic? What should they be watching for in this relationship with the U.K.? I think they should be watching both the UK and the EU. I think on the EU level, um, did their strategies of lockdown work? Did their stimulus packages targeted towards workers work? How quick is the economic recovery? And how effective is the single market post-COVID? You know, because people were concerned about the rise of protectionism. So I would be looking at that from a European perspective perspective. Within the UK, I would be looking at um, the how the negotiations of different trade deals unfold in terms of both with the United States and with the EU, how the UK fares in the WTO, and, you know, how the UK responds to a whole host of issues. I mean, there are restrictions on Chinese foreign direct investment coming out of the EU. There's restrictions on Chinese foreign direct investment in the United States. That's something both sides could actually work on in critical infrastructure and so forth. But the UK may not want to do that. It may want to attract uh, foreign direct investment. And so there's uh, particularly Chinese foreign direct investment. So they may not want to do um, the way and path the U.S. and the EU are going. I do think there will be pushback and potentially division within the U.K. when people start learning about what are the dynamics of a trade agreement with the United States. Um, There is genuine concern about the National Health Service, and I think there's genuine concern about the impact on British farmers who were so supportive of Brexit, some of them, um, for um, a deal with the United States. You know, we didn't you know, we didn't give up the access to the European single market to then have a flood of uh, U.S. uh, farm and agricultural products. That said, you know, if we have high levels of unemployment in, you know, there are cheaper American or Chinese products, you know, people will buy, you know, if their their income is reduced. Um, So I think that. And then the other thing that we will also find is that, you know, the number of people who sign up for unemployment in the UK. What's often forgotten is the UK under the last government, conservatives have radically restructured the unemployment benefit system within the UK. And that has led to some challenges in rollout. It has led to some concerns about groups that are, you know, have had health benefits and welfare benefits cut. And the question will also be on Scotland. Scotland's uh, public services and expenditure are much higher than the rest of the UK. And post-COVID and an economic recession, it's going to, you know, Scotland's going to be 
much better positioned in terms of public services and welfare benefits than the rest of the UK. And I'm not sure people realize that. And can the British government afford to keep that level of benefit and fiscal transfers to Scotland? And then I would also say, watch Northern Ireland, watch the peace process. You know, Congress is very, very active in the Good Friday Agreement. It's a big success story for many members of Congress, some of whom have now retired. And for them, you have, uh, and this is not necessarily a partisan issue. There is a deep sentiment of this is a, a successful foreign policy. We were actively engaged and we want this to continue. And so I expect them to be looking at, uh, and they're going to be very torn. They want to support Ireland and they also are engaged in trade negotiations and have an ally in the UK. And then the final issue perhaps is, you know, the continuation of things like foreign policy and security cooperation. This is going to be important. There are is the five eyes, intelligence cooperation, that's not going to change. So there's a whole host of things that they will be watching. And obviously, you know, unlike uh, the US, uh, the British will not have an election anytime soon. So we're going to be looking from across the pond uh, from the what does this mean for the UK foreign security economic policy with an upcoming election? Will much be done? What will it mean for both any changes in, in Congress or the White House or no changes? Those are all the things that they will have to factor in. Well, it's a fascinating issue, and we're glad that you're keeping an eye on it for us and can help explain it to us. I think, you know, with everything that's been going on, I think it's an easy situation to kind of lose track of if you're not following it every day and so this is a great catch up on this and we'll have to have you back on as, as it unfolds thank you very much and as always we appreciate you listening to the need to know podcast if you have any questions or comments feel free to shoot us an email at need to know at wilsoncenter.org and we'll see you next time <laughs>